Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. There have been developments in the investigation into this past weekend's downtown Sacramento shooting that left six people dead and 12 wounded. Police now say at least five people were directly involved in the shootings and that the incident was sparked by gang rivalries. Here to talk more about this is Sacramento Bee reporter Sam Stanton. Sam, thanks for joining us. No problem. So, Sam, what do we need to know right now about the investigation? Well, the police here are going through hundreds of videos that were taken by uh, bystanders downtown, as well as by uh, police cameras and other cameras that are in the area. They expect to begin um, filing homicide charges relatively soon. So far, no one has been charged directly with any of the shooting that took place. There were more than 100 shell casings recovered from the streets downtown. But the only charges that have been filed so far surround prohibited persons carrying firearms. And why do police believe there's a lot of gang involvement in, in this incident? Well, at least two of the uh, six people who were killed have gang affiliations. According to the court records we've seen, they suspect that there are more with gang ties from those groups. There are various videos on social media online showing some of the participants discussing gangs prior to the uh, shootout. And the evidence that they have seen doesn't reflect what they initially said, that it it really wasn't a mass shooting as much as a gunfight on the streets of Sacramento. And just stepping back away from this particular mass shooting for a moment and to the gang landscape generally in Sacramento, is this something that's been on law enforcement's radar in the recent past? Did they have an inkling that something like this could happen? Well, there have been uh, you know, gang issues in the Sacramento area for years. Years back, the, the feds partnered up with local law enforcement to try and uh, crack down on it. Part of the problem is there's been this pent-up energy from the pandemic. Downtown Sacramento, you know, until recently was virtually empty. And now that people are coming back out, the streets are filling up and the bars are um, very popular downtown. There was a, a rap concert at the Golden One Center downtown on Saturday night. From what witnesses told me, the streets were just jammed with people from 1130 on until 2 a.m. when the shooting took place. And so part of the problem I've been told is that um, there are crackdowns in some of the East Bay clubs on um, the people that are allowing into clubs there. So some folks are uh, migrating to the clubs here. I don't know if that played a role in what happened, but uh, there was some kind of volatile mix. And there's a, 
a notion among some law enforcement that something happened inside this club that precipitated the shooting outside when the, when the bar shut down. And just looking ahead, I assume then uh, uh, three people have been a- arrested. Could you tell us uh, what happens next? Well, two of the people who were charged with um, carrying a firearm as a prohibited person have already made court appearances. The third was in the hospital because he was one of the 12 who was wounded. Uh, so he has not made his court appearance yet. The five who are suspected of being shooters may be separate from those three. There's no indication that any of those three were involved in the shooting as far as we know. They haven't been charged with anything like that. In fact, I spoke with one of them yesterday who adamantly denied any involvement. All right. That is reporter Sam Stanton with the Sacramento Bee. Sam, thanks for joining us on the California Report. Thank you. In 2016, San Diego approved a program to install high-tech street lamps around the city that could also monitor traffic. Then, a few years later, it was revealed that the lights came with cameras and microphones that could potentially watch and record people. The San Diego City Council approved a new municipal board that will oversee surveillance and privacy-related issues in the city. KPBS reporter Christina Kim has more. Nearly a year and a half after it was first passed, the San Diego City Council officially established the city's first privacy advisory board. Council Pro Tem President Monica Montgomery Stepp is the board's top advocate on the city council. She calls it an important first step for stronger privacy protections. Technology is imperative in the way that we conduct city business, Um, but that does not mean that we get a blank check to do so. The new board will give advice and recommendations on the city's use of surveillance technologies and personal data, as well as review how they are currently being used. It will also hold regular public meetings. For the California Report, I'm Christina Kim in San Diego. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. A poll out this week from UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies gives new insights into concerns Californians have for farm workers employed in wildfire evacuation zones. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin has the details. When wildfire threatens crops in California, farm workers can be called upon to help protect harvests. 
This can mean going into dangerous situations with unsafe air conditions, even after others have already left to find safety. More than 80% of California voters polled think that farm workers should both get hazard pay for this work and be given safety training in their own native languages. And more than 70% of voters polled think that farm workers should receive disaster insurance coverage when conditions prevent them from working. While support levels did vary along party lines, with Democrats showing more enthusiasm for these measures than Republicans, support was generally high across the state, even in more conservative regions like the Central and Sacramento Valleys. Support levels did not vary much based on race or education levels. For the California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. Since 1959, California's Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training, or POST, has set rules of conduct for law enforcement in the state. Today, the commission will hold a special meeting to work on defining what kind of police misconduct is serious enough to revoke an officer's badge. KQED's Suki Lewis reports. Last year, the state passed Senate Bill 2, which requires police officers to be certified and grants Post the power to revoke certification for serious misconduct, such as dishonesty, abuse of power, and sexual assault. The commission is tasked with defining the specific criteria for decertification. It is also in the process of hiring for over 120 positions in a new unit that will be dedicated to certification and accountability. Post has until January of next year to implement the new law. For the California Report, I'm Suki Lewis. There were nearly 1 million unfilled IT jobs in the U.S. last year, according to federal employment data. That's a problem for tech companies, but an opportunity for IT professionals in Mexico. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis explains how Tijuana is becoming more than a manufacturing hub. Maritza Diaz is the founder and CEO of iTijuana, a company that connects American businesses with Mexican tech workers. Her clients are mostly companies based in San Diego, and all of them seem to be having the same problem. I, every time I ask my potential customers, what is your biggest problem? It's no longer the cost. The previous problem is just able to hire. They don't care where and how they want to hire because of all of this acceleration. Particularly here in California, when we compete with the big tech of Googles and Facebooks and AWS, it's almost impossible for mid to small companies to hire because every software engineer wants to go work there in the big tech. Diaz says everyone is struggling to hire software developers right now, particularly small to medium-sized companies who keep losing talent to tech giants like Google, Facebook, and Amazon. She views it as an opportunity for Tijuana. Traditionally, the tech sector has relied on countries like India and China to fill the labor gap, but companies no longer need to go that far. For us, being in San Diego, in this beautiful area, when Tijuana is only 20 to 30 minutes down the road, it does not make any sense to go to India or to go to China or the Philippines or anywhere but here. Tijuana offers several advantages. Developers there are highly trained, their salaries are half of what companies would pay in the U.S., and they avoid the logistical hurdles that come with hiring people half a world away. iTijuana started in 2019 and has already produced roughly 700 engineering jobs. Two of those went to Rachel Reyes and Andre Patino. I think there's a lot of opportunities here in Tijuana. That was Reyes, who started as a trainee and now develops mobile apps for a biomedical company. 
Patino collaborates with developers based in San Diego on a daily basis. So when you actually start working with people from the USA or from India or for different places, um, you start to learn from them and they start to learn from you. So it, it's a really fun thing to, to collaborate with different cultures and different environments. They're both aware that they're getting paid a lot less than what developers make in California. But they also say Tijuana's cost of living is much lower. So for them, it kind of evens out. Plus, Patino says that their education is way more affordable. I, I've heard the stories of people taking years and years to pay their student loans. Uh, Mexico is way more accessible. Um, we don't pay nearly as much as, as the U.S. does in university. But I do think they do a great job at, at teaching us. Diaz doesn't see the U.S. labor shortage getting any better in the short term. She thinks Tijuana has the potential to become Mexico's next big tech hub for a couple of reasons. First, the sheer number of openings means that visas for skilled labor are no longer a viable option. The H-1B visa program is capped at 65000 which is not nearly enough to fill the gap. Plus, companies can save a lot of money by hiring in Mexico. When you bring the worker here to the U.S., you're now paying U.S. salaries, right? I don't see any reason why companies need to apply for visas like that when they can actually drive 30 minutes and be there and have hundreds of engineers in Tijuana. Tijuana is a sister side of San Diego, so there's no reason to bring them here. They're already here. For young Tijuanenses, this means having an opportunity in tech without having to leave their hometown. So I think it can go way big. So um, I think there's definitely a lot of room for improvement, but the potential is there. So I think with the right focus and the right work, we can get it to grow into the next big tech hub. For the California Report, this is Gustavo Solis in Tijuana. And that is the California Report for Thursday, April 7th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and talk to you tomorrow. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash Adapting Care. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. Hint. Water with a touch of true fruit flavor. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Happy reading!